walked down the street and I, I said, well, that war will be over before I ever have to go. Famous last words. In 1943, two years later, I was drafted as everybody had to be registered and drafted if you weren't, if you did not enlist. Welcome to the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. This is Fearless with Mark and Amber, where we're talking about the tough issues affecting our society and culture from a biblical perspective and bringing you in on the journey of what we do, making movies. Before we get to our special program today with World War II Airman Dick Gaster and the sacrifice that was made in the past, just a quick reminder of what we do here on Fearless with Mark and Amber. You can learn more about us on our website, of course, fearlessfeatures.org. That's got archives of the programs over the last few months, and it also tells you a little bit more about us, your host. I'm Amber Archer, half of the filmmaking team of Fearless Features, and with me as always is my husband, award-winning filmmaker, author, and speaker, Mark Archer. Mixmaster Mark, thank you. Otherwise known as <laughs> Mixmaster Mark from one of our faithful <laughs> followers and listeners. <laughs> And so thank you guys for joining us today on this Memorial Day special as we recognize a day fully dedicated to all who have died serving our nation. So I have a brief history of Memorial Day, but Mark, was there anything that you wanted to add before I kind of get into this? Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Well, just a real quick on the, the music that we chose for this. Um, I was listening to uh, the radio in 40s junction is our 40s jam. junction on xm is <laughs> just like i love it and this song came on and i turned it up and i was listening to it and and i had to come home and and find it and uh-huh. and i downloaded the lyrics and it's just it's a it is such a timeless piece of music from the era mm-hmm. uh praise the lord and pass the ammunition and we'll all stay free mm-hmm. um Okay, so you go ahead and then I'll, I'll share the rest of the lyrics. With okay. You. All right. So I, I just went to um, wallbuilders.com. They are the premier historians. They have got so much information and I love them. They're biblical, constitutional perspective. And so I, I had to print off their Memorial Day, just a, a brief history of it, because I just I just love everything that they do. And I know that they're well researched mm-hmm. and I'm going to get the truth there. <laughs> so So it says on May 5th. 1868, Major General John A. Logan of the Grand Army of the Republic, an organization made up of Union veterans, set aside May 30th as Decoration Day to commemorate fallen soldiers by adorning their graves with flowers. General Logan's order declared, We should guard their graves with sacrifice vigilance. Let pleasant paths invite the coming and going of reverent visitors and fond mourners. Let no neglect... No ravages of time testify to the present or to the coming generations that we have forgotten as a people the cost of a free and undivided republic. Now that's love it. That year, 5,000 gathered at Arlington National Cemetery to attend commemoration ceremonies presided over by General and Mrs. Ulysses S. Grant. This was the nation's first major tribute to those who fell in the Civil War. And at that time, small American flags were placed on each grave in a tradition that still continues today. Mm -hmm. 
However, the decorations of the graves actually began before General Logan's official order, and some two dozen locations claim to be the first site of the first Memorial Day observance. The majority of these sites are in the South, where most of the casualties of the Civil War are buried. For example, both Macon and Columbus, Georgia, as well as Richmond, Virginia, each claim to have begun Memorial Day in 1866, and Bullsburg, Pennsylvania, claims that it held the first observance in 1864. However, one of the first documented sites to hold a tribute to the Civil War dead took place in Columbus, Missouri on April 25, 1866. A group of women who were placing flowers on the graves of Confederate soldiers, casualties of the battle at Shiloh, noticed the destitute graves of the Union soldiers and also decorated their graves with flowers. The first community-wide observance occurred in Waterloo, New York on May 5, 1866, with a ceremony to honor local Civil War veterans. A century later, in 1966, President Lyndon B. Johnson and Congress declared Waterloo to be the birthplace of Memorial Day because of that earlier observance. By the end of the 19th century, the observance of May 30th as a day to honor the Civil War dead had become a widespread practice across the nation. But after World War I, the tribute was expanded to include all American military men and women who had died in any war. Memorial Day has been acknowledged as the nation's holiday since 1971, when an act of Congress established its observance on the last Monday in May. And in the year 2000, Congress passed the National Moment of Remembrance Act, asking all Americans to pause at 3 p.m. local time on Memorial Day for a minute of silence in remembrance of all those who have died in military service to America. There you go. So there is a brief history. Thank you, Wall Builders. I will leave a link if you guys want to read the rest of it, because there is a sermon attached to it. And it's it was 17 pages. I don't have time to read you guys 17 pages because <laughs> no. I want to get to Mr. Gaster. That would be a four-parter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're known for four-part episodes. Yes, but... we're good at them. So back to the lyrics of the song. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I had to look up the lyrics to this song. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. Uh, and we'll all stay free. Praise the Lord and swing into position. Can't afford to be a politician. Praise the Lord. We're all between perdition and the deep blue sea. Right. And so I, I had to look up perdition because even I wasn't exactly sure the exact meaning of perdition. Mm-hmm. So in Christian theology, it's a state of eternal punishment and damnation into which a sinful and un penitent person passes after death so there's varying uh versions of where this song originated but the the most popular is that it was uh penned by a navy chaplain Mm. um and it was you know first performed it's it's obviously a a a naval song Mm -hmm. um the one of the, the the other verses uh, shouting, praise the Lord, we're on a mighty mission all aboard. We ain't a going fishing. Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition and we'll all stay free. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, I love this song. It's it's very, very much part of the, of the age there. So we're going to hear a story from uh, Mr. Richard Gaster. And uh, we talked a little bit about him yesterday, but Dick Gaster was a friend of ours who was in our Sunday school class. Mm -hmm. Dick and and Treva, his wife. Dick and Treva. And um, back in uh, 2009, so I recorded this June 22nd, 2009, Mm -hmm. 
This was when I was in the Air Force Auxiliary, known as the Civil Air Patrol. One of the things that I did in my time there was I ran a cadet program. Um, I, I first was an assistant, and then I ran the cadet program for a while, did emergency communications, things like that. But the cadet program was like junior ROTC. And so you're dealing with teenagers who are wanting to go into the military service. Mm -hmm. So uh, you would teach them drill and, you know, all that good stuff. And anytime I had a chance to find someone with military background who could come in and speak to them, I would do that. And we were at a, a Sunday school. And a lot of times willing to speak because I know a lot of people don't want to talk about war. Right. So we were at a Sunday school function and I overheard Dick Gaster talking about his story about how he was on an air crew in World War II. <laughs> yeah. Well, that fits right in. We got a bunch of, you know, Air Force cadet, you know, wannabes here. And so I asked him if he would be willing to come in and speak to our cadets. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was more than happy to do that. So he came in and I didn't record video, but I recorded audio. I'm mm -hmm. glad that I did and captured the story. He died uh, just a few years later, October 3rd, 2013. Um, let me read from the Condolence and Memory Journal. Um, Mr. Gaster was a waste gunner on two different air crews from the 453rd Bomber Group and 732nd Bomber Squadron. He served this country in a time where our outlook wasn't very good on our world. Through the accomplishments of Mr. Gaster and the two crews he flew with, we all have a much safer place to live in. Um, he will forever be remembered and honored by all of us at the 453rd Bomber Group Memorial Association. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wanted to read, I have a copy of his, he had made a list of all of his missions. Yeah. And he let me, he let me borrow it to make a copy. Um, now, Dick Gaster flew 35 missions over Europe. And his first mission was on July 7th over Germany. And I, I love the names. He recorded the, the date and where they flew and the name of the airplane. Yeah. <laughs> the names of the airplanes yes. are <laughs> so, pretty and I, neat. And I, can't, I couldn't read all of them because it's kind of a bad copy. But um, some of my favorites. El Flacco. Mm -hmm. Hump Shot. <laughs> Made of Fury. M-A-I-D, Made of Fury, Hard to Get, Lucky 13, <laughs> this one's good, Late, yeah. <laughs> uh, 613, Lucky 13, uh, Little Nancy, Hump Shot again, he flew Hump Shot quite a bit, My Aching Back, um, and Ford's Folly was the last that was his 35th mission uh, over Germany mm. in, in one called Ford's Folly. So briefly, for all of the war nerds out there, this is he was a waste gunner on a B-24 Liberator. And so the waste gunner is, the, there are two of them, one on each side of the plane, and they're in the tail. So midway back on the airplane, and they have 50 caliber machine guns, and they defend the side of the aircraft. And on the B-24, it was an open window. Mm -hmm. It was not a pressurized airplane. And so you'll hear him talk about uh, how cold it would get up there. They would fly in at 30,000, 35,000 feet. 
They and had to have. Could you oxygen. just imagine? <laughs> just, just imagine this. Just imagine. This is why these things are so. I love the richness and mm. the authenticity of his testimony and being able to share openly because we would never, we would never let anybody do that today. Oh yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> there are too many rules. Oh, there's yeah, yeah safety <laughs> violations. OSHA, you can't let this happen. Um, and he actually talked about that. Um, he was actually in an an accident, but it was during training. Yeah, he, he he did crash, but it was during training in Arizona, and he he passed out one time because his um, his oxygen mask f- got frozen up. Oh, and if it weren't for the other waste gunner seeing that he had fallen over, he would have died. Yeah, he would have suffocated in in the in the plane. So. Um, anyway, so that is uh, a little bit to set up our uh, story here with Staff Sergeant Dick Gaster. So let's give a listen. I was a 16-year-old kid, walked down the street, and I, I said, well, that war will be over before I ever have to go. Famous last words. In 1943, two years later, I was drafted as... Everybody had to be registered and drafted if you weren't, if you did not enlist. And I, I waited to be drafted. And so 1943, I was drafted and inducted at Indianapolis, Fort Ben Harrison. I had my choice of going any branch of the service I wanted to, which was fortunate. I qualified for uh, the Air, Air Corps. At that time, we were part of the Army and was called the Army Air Corps. And so, if, as long as I qualified, primarily uh, my eyes uh, was, a, was a big factor. Of course, physically you had to go out. So I thought I was gonna go to Air Cadet School and be a pilot. I was sent to basic training in Amarillo, Texas. Spent eight weeks there and uh, found out that my next assignment would be to gunnery school, to be a gunner on a, on a bomber. So I was sent to uh, Kingman, Arizona, and uh, spent about two months there. We learned to uh, use a 50 caliber a machine gun and there's there's a bullet there that I, we use, and uh, we use various kind of targets uh, on the ground, practicing, and also in the air, air to air. So we we've got up to fly in airplanes, and at that particular Kingman base, they used the B-17 bomber, which was a four-engine bomber. Uh, had the same amount of crew that a, the bomber I eventually ended up with. But anyhow, I was up in training, and we, we trained on on the, the bomber. We would train on each of the guns, and we had a tow target pulled by a, a twin-engine bomber called a B-26 Marauder. And at the end of that uh, bomber, they would have a big windbag. 
well, at the end of a rope, and we would practice with our guns aiming at that windbag. And uh, one, one very first time I went up, and I had never been up in a bomber. I'd been up in airplanes, but I'd never been up in a bomber. And so we were going down, traveling, we'd, we'd travel to treetop, and this was out in the desert. And um, the pilot got out of the pilot seat and gave, gave the plane control to the co-pilot. He was going back to uh, the back of the plane. And as the top turret turned around, it forced him to the side of the plane and he grabbed the inside of the fuselage, started an electrical fire. And not only started an electrical fire, he was knocked out. So the co-pilot, being very green, just out of what they called transitional school, decided he needed to get that airplane down on the ground. When you knocked out all the electrical, you, you, you couldn't lower your, your landing gear, you couldn't do anything electrical. Uh, in fact, even the intercom was out. So he decided that I need to get this plane down which was not really true, but he didn't realize that. You can crank down the landing gear manually. But without telling anybody on the plane that he was going to do this, he took the plane, because we'd been flying at low, at low levels, he took the plane down and uh, brought it in on the belly. And with, with all the gunners in different positions, in fact, I was in the nose of the plane, which was the worst place to be in an airplane crash. And so I had a real baptism in, in flying uh, on a bomber my very first time up. I didn't, uh, I, as I recall, they, they said you, you possibly could get out of flying since that was your first experience, but I didn't. And so I ended up... Uh, going through the gunnery school. And at gunnery school, we had to learn to take part, take apart the 50 caliber machine gun and um, piece by piece and put it back together. And so we knew the, the complete operation of uh, the 50 caliber machine gun. So then after getting out of gunnery school uh, in March of 19... 44, as it states on your sheet there, um, I uh, went to uh, Salt Lake City, uh, Utah, and our crew was formed. All, all branches, all the pilot, co-pilot, all the officers, and all the enlisted men, all the crew, were brought together at Salt, and at that point, in my situation, it was at Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, so after we were crew was formed, we went to flying as a crew together to practice missions, and and then uh, that was that took place at uh, El Paso, Texas, at Biggs Field, and we trained there until about. May of 1944, and at that time, um, we were 
we went to uh, Topeka, Arizona to get an airplane to fly, to ferry it overseas. Brand new airplane, I've got a picture of it. Uh, you can pass it around if you want. Which one is you? That. Okay. Uh, we picked up the airplane and uh, and the, the crew got together and I left for overseas on, uh, in May of 1944, made a stop in uh, New Hampshire, fueling stop in New Hampshire and uh, Newfoundland, uh, Labrador, and ended up you know, in June, on June 6th in uh, Greenland. And anybody know what happened on June 6th of 1944? What happened? It was D Day, sir. When the major invasion of Normandy. An invasion of Normandy, and, and that was the start of D Day. So I was in, in Normandy on D Day. And of course, we heard about it over our radio. So uh, after after spending a night at Green Bay or at at uh, Greenland, sorry, uh, where at night it was only dark about a couple hours in June. So we flew from there to and landed in Scotland, flying this plane over to Scotland, and and then then. Uh, after flying some practice missions, we were sent to uh, our base in northeast England, and uh, then uh, this was about a month after D-Day on on the seventh of uh, July. I flew my first mission, and uh, it was. It was a real baptism too, because I've got a uh, I kept a diary of my missions, and uh, on that on that mission it was into a town called Halle H A L L E in Central Germany, about twenty miles northwest of Leipzig. They had uh, aircraft assembly plants, synthetic oil works, and ball bearing plants. Our, our group, incidentally, we flew as groups of about 36 planes in a, in a formation, and there were about uh, 15, 15 uh, groups, and a group is, uh, is about uh, approximately 36. 15 groups flew each mission. There were one group of uh, the B-24, which is the Liberator bomber, and two groups of B-17, the uh, fort, flying fortress. So you can see there'd be about, if we flew 36 out of each group, be about a thousand planes on every mission. We wouldn't all fly the same target, but this target was, was, uh, as I say, near Leipzig, and um, 
I'm going to pass around the diary I, I kept of it. But as we were coming off the target, this is the very first mission, as we were coming off the target, we saw another B-24 go down after colliding with the ship, another plane in front of it on a turn. And uh, then we saw... Uh, another B-24 go down after colliding and uh, in, in, in front on a turn. But here's a, here's a copy of my diary I kept with that mission. Might be interesting to you to, to see what happened. And I, I kept a diary for the first 17 of my missions and they said, oh, you won't be able to, you won't be able to take uh, that home with you if you, if you make uh, if you make your tour efficient, which was incidentally 35. At, at the time I was first there, it was 30 missions. They said, you wouldn't be able to take that home with you because there's too much vital information to the enemy that, that they wouldn't want that to get in the enemy hands. So I quit after 17 missions making a diary. And, and uh, after, after I did finish my tour missions, I could have made them all, and they because they they mailed a diary to me after I got back in the states. But I could have I could have made a diary of all. I was I regretted that. But after I flew thirty missions, and we flew about one mission every three days. So for the first ninety days, I flew thirty missions. So I started in July of 40, 1944, and by the end of September, I had flown 30 missions. They said, well, now you're going to go home. Or we thought we would get home, I should say. And so we uh, waited around and waited around two months to get our trip home. And they said, I'm sorry. We changed our mind. You got to fly five more missions. So naturally, after flying thirty, and of course celebrating our completion of our tour, now we thought, well, we'll probably get shot down now after after thirty. In the next five, we'll probably get shot down. Well, unfortunately, the Lord was with me. I completed thirty-five missions. My last mission was in. The Battle of Bulge on December 19th, 1944. So I completed 35 missions. And, and uh, the, the, the last th five and then the last two uh, in November and December of 1944. So I was able to complete my tour. And uh, then they sent us home back to the States. I uh, came back by a ship, took 12 days on the water, zigzagging, because they were still, uh, the possibility of uh, German uh, ships, uh, German submarines. So we zigzagged across and took 12 days, come back. And I arrived back in the States in, uh, in, uh, January of 1945. Um, after 
after going to a rest and rehabilitation base in California, where we lived, we got to live pretty, pretty nice. Could sleep as late as you wanted to, could eat anytime you wanted to, and they really treated us nice. I wanted to get back to the Midwest, so I, I enrolled in a, in a class to become a radio operator, and I was sent to Scottfield, Illinois. They told me that very likely, or more, most probably, you'd never have to fly any more combat since I had completed, completed a, a tour of missions, even though the war was still going on in, in the Pacific. And so I, I got into gunnery school so I could get back, since I was from the Midwest, get back to the Midwest. And I did, I did go through the gunnery school, but uh, when, when the war was ended, uh, in uh, Pacific, in November, I never had to fly anymore. The B-24 was a was a, uh, a bomber that that uh, was probably it was more vulnerable because it was bulkier than the B-17 bomber. Uh, the B-17 bomber was pretty compact. We we didn't we did have fighters uh, protecting us all of our missions. But uh, they had pretty well beaten the German Air Force. And so we, we were, we would see some of the German fighters out there radioing our altitude back to the, the anti-aircraft. And the main thing we had to fight, had to put up with, I should say, was what was called flak. They would shoot those in the air and they would explode at a set altitude, and it was a big puff of smoke. If, if you didn't get a direct hit, you got some of the shrapnel from the, from the explosion. And we, many times we had many, many uh, holes in our plane from, from the shrapnel. But if you got a direct hit from one of those, uh, you, you were gone. We did, we did fly with uh, electrical suits on to keep us warm because the altitude was 40, 40, 40 degrees below zero, approximately. And we had, a, of course, a harness on to put on a, a parachute. But if you got a direct hit, uh, since our parachute would not be attached, we had a flak suit to protect us from shrapnel coming through the fuselage of the plane uh, to bounce off of the flak suit to keep protect our our bodies. And if you had to if you had a direct hit, well you're, well you're no chance to pick up your your parachute and put it on your harness and take your flak suit off and put it on your harness. So you wouldn't have a chance if if you had a direct hit. Uh, another thing uh, we I did in the plane on my job was we had a, a chute right at the, the bottom of the waist, and we had metalized pieces of paper. They were, it was called shaft. We would throw that out of a chute, and that, that would uh, throw off the, uh, the Germans' 
anti-aircraft uh, radar, so they wouldn't know whether it was airplane or or metalized pieces of paper. So that helped us to keep the uh, getting direct hits. Uh, I was discharged from uh, the Air Force. They discharge you on number of points for missions, medals, overseas time. You got extra time, uh, extra points, and the amount of time you're in the service. After the war ended in uh, in uh, 1945, the war was over in August of 45. I was discharged uh, from the Air Corps uh, in October of 1945. Uh, shortly, well, excuse me, actually ended in August, so September, October, two months. I, I served two years, two months and two days on active duty. And I went in at, 19, at 18, and I was, I was discharged at 20, 20 years old. And I, I might add, I wasn't, I wasn't a Christian at that time, but I, there's no atheist in a foxhole. And the good Lord knew that I would become a Christian and I did so in 1962. And I know that's the only reason that I am here today to tell you about my experiences. Thank you. So there is Gaster's story. Um, he was such a treasure to a lot of us. And, you know, yes, it's Memorial Day. And Dick Gaster obviously did not die in battle. Uh, he lived a good long life and left a family here who loved him and misses him. Um, and that's uh, one of the differences that people a lot of times don't understand is the difference between Memorial Day and Veterans Day. Mm -hmm. Memorial Day is to honor those who died in combat, in mm -hmm. service. Veterans Day is for honoring veterans. Those mm -hmm. are people who came served, home. served and came home. Yeah. They're both important. Um, but uh, because we have uh, Dick's whole story, I just thought it was a great story to share. I did want to honor the rest of his crew uh, because you can't do this alone. Um, First Lieutenant Robert J. Crowley, crew. Pilot First Lieutenant Robert J. Crowley, co-pilot First Lieutenant Don A. Duvall. Navigator, First first Lieutenant Todd D. Moore. Bombardier, First Lieutenant John M. Smart. Engineer, Tech Sergeant Henry R. Kuczynski. Radio Operator, Tech Sergeant William Schneider. Nose Gunner, Staff Sergeant Albert M. Shoemaker. Waste Gunner, Staff Sergeant Richard G. Gaster. Waste Gunner, Staff Sergeant Bernard Van Bruggen. And Tail Gunner, Staff Sergeant Joseph A. Intermore. And this was uh, put up on his memorial by the 453rd Bomber Group Memorial Association. So incidentally, the 453rd Bomber Group was part of the mighty 8th, 8th Air Force. Mm -hmm. And their celebrity uh, of the 8th, the mighty 8th, was none other than Jimmy Stewart. Can you name a Jimmy Stewart movie? 
Yes, it's a wonderful life. There you go. Jimmy Stewart was actually in the Army combat? Air Corps in, mm-hmm. in combat, yeah, in World War II. He was part of the Mighty Eighth, not part of the 453rd, but um, anyway. Fun facts for you. Fun fact for you. There you go. Yeah, thank you guys so much for sticking around to the end. And please, on Memorial Day, 3 p.m., take that moment of silence to remember all those who have sacrificed and died during the service to our nation. Have a wonderfully blessed day and weekend. We will talk to you again on Tuesday. Oh, Lord, we ain't a-going fishing. Pray.